If you got your Bibles and uh, you want to follow along, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 20, and we're going to be covering the whole chapter today, Genesis chapter 20, and the title of our lesson is Persistent Sin, Persistent Sin. So there's a, the story is told, or at least I read this one time, of uh, four men who decided to form an accountability group. And uh, so they, they got together for the first time and had their meeting, and they thought that it, it might be important to just get off on the right foot and confess their sin to one another. And so they decided to, uh, each one would confess what their most persistent sin is. And what I mean by persistent sin is this is a sin that just won't go away. Uh, it's, it's a sin that hangs around in your life for, for years, and most Christians have these. Um, it's something you, 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 you try to beat, and, and maybe for a while you think you got it beat, and then one day it just pops right back up again. So that's what I mean by a, a persistent sin. So they, they get together, and the first man, he goes first, and he said, well, my persistent sin is gambling. He said, when I get, uh, he, said, I like to, uh, uh, he said, I like to go online and, and, and play poker, and, and I bet on football games, and and he said, I know I shouldn't be doing it, but I just can't stop. He said, I think I got it beat for a while, but then the, the urge comes back and I just do it again. And that's my persistent sin. The second man said, well, mine is, is drinking. He said, I, I keep a bottle of wine hidden in the house. And when I get frustrated or when I get really stressed out, I sneak off and, and uh, have a little bit of wine. And that's my, my persistent sin is, is drinking. The third man said, well, mine is anger. He said, I, I keep a punching bag in my basement, and when somebody makes me mad, I go down there and I just punch that bag while I think about them. I think that's, that's them, and that's, that's my persistent sin. And so they turned to the fourth man and said, well, what's, what's yours? And he was very hesitant. He didn't want to say what his was, but, and they kind of kept coaxing him and coaxing him. Hey, man, you know, we told you our, you know, our persistent sin. What, what is yours? So finally... They got him to admit, he said, mine is gossip, and I just can't wait to get home, right? Persistent sin is kind of like a, a piece of furniture that you got in your house, and you keep, you keep hitting your shins against it, right? You would think after you've lived in that house for a number of years, you'd either move it or learn where it was and learn to go around it, but right when you think, well, I'm not going to hit it again, bam, that one morning you get up or that evening, you, you hit your shin on that, and it just happens again and again and again. Now, I bring up this topic of persistent sin because here in chapter 20 of Genesis, even Abraham, that, that great man of faith, that man that we put on a pedestal and talk about how great a man of God he was, and he was, but even that man had a persistent sin. And here in chapter 20... He's going to do the exact same stupid thing that he did back in chapter 12. He's going to make the same mistake, commit the same sin again. And by the way, roughly 25 years have gone by between chapter 12 and chapter 20. And you're going to see he's got the same weakness, the same persistent sin that he did uh, back then. Now, as we go into this chapter, I want you to remember that he's not very far removed from chapter 18. Y'all remember chapter 18, God comes down with two angels and visits with Abraham. 
And in that same chapter, uh, he intercedes with God over the, over the cities of the valley, Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities. And, and so he, he's literally, because of that chapter, is called a friend of God. So you would think, man, that is the, literally, Abraham is a giant spiritually, right? He, he can't do something stupid like this again. And by the way, if the Bible was a fairy tale, he wouldn't make the same mistake again. I mentioned this last week, but the Bible's not a fairy tale. The Bible's a real story, and it, and it tells us all, it just lays everything out there, even for its heroes like Abraham. It just tells us, listen, this is who they are. And there is, there is some wonderful lessons in this chapter. Somebody asked me uh, last week, do I ever have any aha moments when, I, when I'm studying? And I really don't. The only aha moment I have is, aha, they are exactly like me. It, I, I can't get through. Uh, it, he's exactly like me. I make those same mistakes. I do those things. I, I'm a dummy just like he is, right? I mean, it, how could you do that, Abraham? Oh, yeah, well, I do it. It's, it's easy to believe this story because we do the exact, uh, we do the exact same thing. I wanna, I'm going to give you a few observations as we go through this chapter. Here's my first one. Persistent sin is always a danger in your life. Okay? There are some branches of Christianity uh, that teach you that you can get to a point in your life where you basically reach a state of sinless perfection. Now listen, I wish that were true. I really do. I, I wish that were true. I, I've had uh, uh, someone in this church try to convince me that's true. That is not true. I'm sorry. Um, the Bible does teach us that we can reach a place where we have consistent victory over sin. I believe that. But it also teaches that even the strongest, most mature Christian is always going to be susceptible and vulnerable to temptation. I can tell you this, go to the Bible and try to find me one man that reached that state of sinless perfection. You can't, Abraham didn't do it. Paul didn't do it. Peter didn't do it. None of them did it. And they were great men of the faith. You, you just can't get to that point. Even, I don't care how long you've walked with the Lord, how strong you are, you're always going to be susceptible to temptation. Okay, And as long as we remember that, as long as that we remember that in and of ourselves we're weak and we walk in the Spirit, then we will be strong. But as soon as you forget it, as soon as you think, my little granddaughter has got this saying, I'll try to help her with something. She says, no, I got this. That's what she says, I got this. Well, as soon as you say to yourself, I got this, you're in big trouble. You're in huge trouble, Okay. Because that's where we step away from the Lord and think, I don't really need the Holy Spirit. I don't need Him. I can do this on my own. Or to put it another way, there'll never be a time in your life where you are so strong that you don't have to guard against temptation. Paul said in his letter to the Corinthians, uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed or beware lest he fall. That is when you are in real danger when you think, I don't have to worry about that anymore. Now let's turn and open our chapter. Genesis chapter 20, verse 1. It says this, From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev, and he lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. So if you remember, Abraham is living up somewhere around what is today the Dead Sea, up around the Jordan Valley. <clears throat> and it says that he, he kind of 
packed up his tent, packed up all his people and his animals, and he went south back toward the Negev Desert, which is down around, uh, uh, back toward Egypt. And he sojourned or stopped for temporarily in a place called Gerar. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us why he did that. Now, it's very likely, remember in chapter 19, that valley, that area where the cities are has been destroyed, right? In fact, it tells us, we know even today that area won't grow anything, it's just dead. Well, it's very likely that Abraham would have had to move because remember, he had a lot of animals he had to feed and water. A lot of the vegetation, the, the grasses, the water would have been greatly diminished in that area. So it's very likely he picked up to move because he had to feed his people and his animals and things like that. So he tried to find a better place. We don't know that for sure, but that could be one reason. Verse 2, And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, here we go again, right? This is the exact same thing he did in, in chapter 12. If you go back, uh, if you got time later and you go back and you read chapter 12, uh, it says this. Now, there was a famine in the land. By the way, this is 25 years ago. There was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a good-looking woman. And she must have been a, a fine-looking woman because he worried about that all the time. He says, I know you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they're going to say, this is his wife, and they're going to kill me, and they're going, to, they're going to take you anyway. So say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. And that's exactly what happened, if you'll remember. They, they, she said, I'm his sister, and so the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. The Lord intervened, put a bunch of plagues on Pharaoh, revealed to him that she belonged to another man, and everything worked out fine. See, in chapter 12, he goes into Egypt, and he's got this need to protect himself, right? And it's going to turn out in his life, this wasn't a one-time thing. Evidently, he had a deep-seated fear for his own safety, especially when it came to her. Okay, so this isn't something that just happened one time, and he learned his lesson 25 years later, here he is, he's doing the exact same thing. He's telling this lie again. He's putting his wife out there as his sister, and he's doing it for the same reason, which is to protect his own safety. Now listen, let's be honest. He should have learned back in chapter 12 that if God calls you to a situation, he'll protect you. He did that. He, didn't, he put all these plagues on Pharaoh's house. He should have learned that lesson. So this second scheme, this second lie is completely unnecessary. But this is clearly a weak area with Abraham. Okay, When he travels with his wife, he says, man, say you're my sister. And we'll find out later he's been doing this for a long, long time. Here's another observation. If you have persistent sin, be careful of the situations that expose you to danger. See, Abraham leaves the land of Canaan and he goes down into this new place, into this place called Gerar. And, and by the way, there is no indication that he ever asked the Lord, should I do this? Right? It just says he got up and went. Never says he asked the Lord, should I, should I do this thing? And he goes and he puts himself in a situation that exposed him to the same danger he was in those 25 years ago. Listen, we got to say it in our house, it's not rocket science, right? If you know that you're weak in a certain area, shouldn't you avoid that situation? 
right? If you know you're vulnerable in a certain way, make a plan not to sin. Don't just go put yourself in a situation and say, well, I'll just figure this out. I'm stronger than I was the last time, and you put yourself right back into it. Make a plan not to sin. But Abraham put himself into the same situation he was in those years ago. Now, a couple questions I want to answer real quick. Sarah, at this point, is 90 years old, okay? So you might want to know, why in the world would Abimelech be so interested in a 90-year-old woman, right? I mean, you know, I mean... She's 90 years old, right? I mean, why? What's, what's the deal here? Okay, so let's talk about this. 25 years ago, when they went down to Egypt, she was 65. And Abraham said at that time, everybody knows you are one fine woman, right? He, he, everybody knows that. And she's 65 years old. And it actually says back in chapter 12, they will want you because of your beauty, okay? Now remember, you got to think about, we think about 65 and 90 differently than they would have then. Sarah dies at 127 years old, okay? That's when she's eventually going to die. So at 65, she's, she's only right around the halfway point of her life. So if you, in modern terms, you think, uh, let's say most people live, uh, a woman today live about average to about 80. So that would be about 40 years old in today's ages. So Sarah at that time would have been about the halfway equivalent to a 40-year-old woman. Everybody with me? So obviously, it's certainly not too old to have retained her beauty. Actually, Abraham lives to 175. So if Sarah, maybe she died a little early for some reason, if she would have lived to 175, 65 would have put her equivalent to probably a a woman in her late 20s at that time. Certainly not too old uh, in that day and age to have retained her beauty. But now she is 90, okay? which would be, at 127, would be equivalent to a woman in her mid-50s. And i got to be really, really careful here as I, as I walk through this. Um, so, <clears throat> she would obviously still be a- attractive, right? But she's past the flower of her youth. Right? Is, that a, is that the best way to say it? So, the question is, is she still so stunning that, every, that kings just have to have her? Well, I want you to notice that in this text, it never mentions her beauty. In chapter 12, Abraham says, Say you're my sister because, man, you are so beautiful, they're going to want to have you. But here, he just says, Say you're my sister. He doesn't mention her, her beauty anymore. So it could be that Abimelech wanted her for other reasons. In that day, they would marry... Uh, between kings and between powerful men, they would marry off their daughters and their sisters to cr- create these alliances between uh, families. Obviously, Abraham is a very wealthy man at this time. He's got all kind of uh, servants, and, and he's got family, and he's got cattle and camels and sheep and all of these things. So, so obviously, he's very wealthy, so Abimelech may have wanted her to create an, an alliance. In fact, Next week, we'll see in chapter 21 that he actually does create an alliance with with Abraham. So, the best way I can say this is, even though Sarah is no longer in the flower of her youth, she's probably still a very attractive woman whose family ties could help Abimelech. Did I say that very good enough? Okay, let's move on. Verse 3. Verse 3. So, God comes to Abimelech in a dream by night, 
And this gets very interesting here. He comes to Abimelech in a dream by night, and he said to him, Behold, you are a dead man. You are a dead man because of the woman whom you've taken, for she is another man's wife. Now, here's a question I got. Why would God... By the way, Abimelech is a pagan. He doesn't know the Lord, doesn't worship God, doesn't... He's a pagan. Why in the world would God come and talk to a pagan Abimelech instead of talking to his friend Abraham? Why wouldn't he just go to Abraham and say, Abraham, don't do this. This is the dumbest thing. I mean, come on, man. You did this 25 years ago. It was a mess. You don't need to lie. Just, just trust me. But God doesn't do that. He just lets Abraham do what he's going to do, and he goes and he talks to the pagan. Why would he, why would he do that? Well, I think that's a good question. As I said, Abraham is known by this time as the friend of God. Why didn't God just, just talk to him? I don't know, but I think a good reason could be that God sometimes allows us to step in it to teach us a lesson. Sometimes He just allows us to fail because He wants to show us something. See, even as mature Christians like Abraham, you need to be reminded that your salvation depends on Him and not you. That if it depends on you, you ain't going to make it. If it depends on you, you're going to mess it up. It depends on Him and Him alone. And sometimes I think He lets us just fall into it to prove it again. Look, I done told you this. It's about me. It's about grace. It's about the elect. It's not about you, right? Listen, we read this story and we think, well, He told a little white lie and it all turned out okay. But here's something you need to understand. This event takes place right on the verge of of Sarah getting pregnant with Isaac. Remember, ever since chapter 12, God's been saying, man, I'm going I'm to make you a great nation. And now he's told him, I'm going to give you a son by Sarah. Right? This has all been building up these years to the, to the fulfillment of this promise, which is going to happen, by the way, in the next chapter. And right on the verge of Isaac being born, Abraham almost messes the whole thing up. In his attempt to protect himself, he almost spoils God's promise. Think about it this way. Just think for a moment what would have happened if Abimelech had consummated his relationship with Sarah. He had gone into her and had relations with her, and she got pregnant. Well, listen, eventually a son comes along. How does Abraham know whose son it is? Is it my son? Is it Abimelech's son? By the way, down the line, Christ would come from the line of Abraham um, and from the line of Isaac. So if, 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 if Abimelech had gone into Sarah, that whole thing would have been under a cloud. We would have never known for sure that that was Abraham's son. Could have been, could have been Abimelech's son, right? So the entire messianic plan, the entire lineage of, 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 of Isaac and Jacob all the way down to Christ is jeopardized because of this stupid lie that he, that he tells. So it's a big deal what is going on here. So God may have allowed this right on the verge of the promise being fulfilled to remind Abraham, look, Abraham, if this promise is going to come to pass, it's going to come to pass because of me and only me, not because of you. Because if, you, if it's left up to you, you will mess it up. Look at verses 4 and 5. Now, Abimelech had not approached her, and that just means he hadn't had relations with her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent man or innocent people? 
Did he not himself say to me, she's my sister? And didn't she herself say, he's my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Now, as strange as it may seem, in this story, Abimelech stands head and shoulders above Abraham. Abraham is the liar. Abraham is the deceiver. This pagan Canaanite king has more integrity in this passage than Abraham does. More integrity than Abraham. And he doesn't even know the Lord. Listen, we've got to admit, there's, there's really no sin, virtually no sin, which a, which a Christian cannot fall into. And, and there's going to be times in this life where we're going to see Christians fall into sin. And there will literally be non-Christians who are more moral than the Christian, who have more integrity than the Christian. Okay? Listen, Paul, that was true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 5.1, Paul says this, It is actually reported there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. You're doing things in the church that they're not doing outside the church. There you go. They got more integrity than you do. They're more moral than you are. You're going to see that. It's true even today. I can, I can point to some Christians and say there and show them, and I can find, go out, probably go out there and find a man outside that's not a Christian and say, look at his integrity. But listen, folks, salvation is not an integrity contest, it's not a moral contest. It's not about who's got the most integrity, it's not about that at all. It's about grace. It's about grace. And you're going to see this in this story probably presented as well as, as any way I could explain it to you, that it's about grace, it's not about integrity. So here you've got this man, Abraham, chosen by God, a friend of God, and he's got less integrity than this pagan king. Look at verse 6. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, there is a very, very interesting statement in this passage. And that is, I kept you from sinning against me. This, this tells us two things. This statement shows us there is no excuse for sin. Okay? If a, listen to me very closely. If Abimelech had slept with Sarah, even though he didn't know she was married... It's still adultery in God's eyes. He says, I kept you from sinning. Even though you didn't know. In your heart, you, you thought you were innocent. But it wasn't innocent because you slept with another man's wife. It is adultery in my eyes. I don't care what you thought about it. Does everybody see that? I kept you from sinning. You would have sinned if you had done this thing. You see this, the ignorance excuse, I didn't know? That's, that's not going to be an excuse on Judgment Day. Sin is sin. doesn't matter if you do it ignorantly or doesn't matter if you do it knowingly. It's still sin. And all sin has to be paid for. All sin has to be accounted for, whether it was done out of ignorance or not. It doesn't matter. The second thing he says to him is, I kept you from sinning against me. You see, the fact is, if he had slept with Abraham's wife, even unknowingly, yes, he would have hurt Abraham. Yes, he would have hurt Sarah. But the fact is, his sin, first and foremost, is a sin against God, as all sin is. That's what David said. 
David, uh, 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 you know, slept with Bathsheba, committed adultery, and then he murdered her husband Uriah. And when Nathan comes to him and says, you're guilty, he, uh, basically David says, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. Not against Bathsheba, not against Uriah, but against you. See, all sin is against him. First and foremost, it is God that we dishonor. Look at verse 7 and 8. God is still speaking in the dream. He says this, Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. He will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, and he called all his servants, and he told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. See, folks, the wonder of this passage is not that Abraham could fall from maturity that he could fall and and sin again. That's not the wonder. The wonder, in fact, that's easy easy to believe because we all know it's true. There's not a person in this room that hasn't been at some point in your life and you think, boy, I am so strong, I'm, I'm on this, and all of a sudden, boom. That persistent sin pops up again or something happens and you realize I'm not near as strong. There's not a person here. We all get that. We all see how a man like Abraham could walk with God one day, talk with God one day, and a day later or weeks later, he's, he's fell right back into sin. We get that. That's not the wonder. That's not the hard thing to understand or believe in this passage. The wonder of this passage is the faithfulness of God to Abraham. See, had I been God and I'd been talking to Abimelech, the last thing I want to do would be to reveal my relationship to Abraham. Oh, he's my prophet. I mean, let's be honest, that's a little embarrassing. The guy you chose has less integrity than the, than the pagan king. God, you know, why, why would you want to even admit that, that he's my man? Yet the fact God does, he discloses to Abimelech that Abraham is mine. In fact, he calls him a prophet. And by the way, the prophet was the intermediary in that day, God's representative on earth. He's saying, he's my man. He's my intermediary. He's my representative. He's going to have to pray for you in order for you to be healed. I mean, can you imagine Abimelech thinking, Are you, is this a joke? That guy's a liar. That guy's a deceiver. What, he's yours? What, is that all it takes to be a man of God? But you see, folks, that's grace. That's grace. Even when we are unfaithful, God is still faithful to us. Even when we mess up, even when we fail, God is not embarrassed to call us His own. That's still my man. That's still my woman. That's still my child. That's what uh, Paul said in his letter to Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, He remains faithful because He cannot deny Himself. Man, what a what a... You start looking at this story and you look how Abraham messes up. That's not, the, that's not really the lesson. The lesson is how God doesn't abandon him. God still honors him and calls him his, his own. Look at verse 9 and 10. Then Abimelech called Abraham and he said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done things to me that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? In other words, he was asking him, what were you thinking? What what made you do this thing? 
Here's another observation, and you're going to see this from Abraham. We tend to excuse persistent sin. We tend to make excuses for persistent sin. I'm going to give you Abraham's. By the way, I'd like to be able to say that Abraham learned his lesson and he went on uh, to put that sin out of his life. And maybe he did. The Bible doesn't tell us. But all I can tell you is in this passage, Abraham never admits he's wrong. All he does is make excuses. I'm going to give you four excuses. Excuse number one, verse 11. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. I ask people sometimes if, if theology is important. Oh, folks, good theology is critical. You understand, when we come in here and we study, you know what we're, we're trying to find out? At the end of the day, in a nutshell, we want to know who is God. That, that's, that's what we're trying to find out. Through his interactions with Abraham, through his interactions with Noah, through his interactions with whoever, we're just trying to learn about who he is to get a right view of God. Because if you've got a wrong view of God, you're in big trouble. It will lead you to unbelief. By the way, Abraham had bad theology. Abraham, in this case, had a wrong view of God. Notice he admits that he acted out of fear of being killed. And his fear is based on a wrong view of God. Listen, like many today, Abraham believed that God is only able to act when men are willing to obey. Let me say that again. Abraham believed that if I go into a place and, and, and they don't know God, then God's hand is short and he can't do anything. Are, are you with me? That's exactly what he believed. They don't fear God, so God can't protect me. See, we're the same way. Sometimes we stay silent in a situation with people because they don't fear God. They may not even know God. And you think, well, God can't really act because they don't really know Him. And we, and we stand back. We, 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 we don't trust God. Listen, God's hand, He can do anything He wants to do anytime He wants to do it. But if you believe that, if you believe there's no fear of God in that person or in that place, and you, you don't act because of that, you've got bad theology exactly like Abraham did. See, the inference here in this passage is where whenever there are ungodly men, God can't act. That's, that, see, bad theology leads to unbelief, which is exactly what Abraham had. By the way, this is the same fear Abraham had 25 years ago. He didn't believe then that, that, that uh, God could save him from Pharaoh so he concocts his story to save himself. And here we are now. By the way, God proved himself 25 years ago. Here we are 25 years later, and Abraham is still acting in unbelief. Not because he's uninformed. He knows. He knows what God did 25 years ago, but he still don't believe he can act in that situation. So he has to take it upon himself. By the way, just a quick point. Do you understand Abraham's conduct in this situation is no different than Lot? We've talked a lot about Lot and kind of got on Lot the last few weeks and what he did. But the fact is, Lot was willing to sacrifice his two daughters to save two angels, and Abraham is willing to sacrifice his wife to save himself. What's the difference? There is no difference. He acted exactly like Lot did. In both cases, they set aside morality because of the practicality of the situation. He made the same exact mistake. Excuse number two, verse 12. He said this, Besides... She really is my sister. 
She's the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So it turns out Sarah, Abraham and Sarah have the same father, but they have different mothers. So she's his, really his half-sister. So she really is his sister. So basically what he's saying is I'm not, it's not really a lie. Listen, we can use any fact and statistics you want and mislead people, right? I heard somebody say one time, if your head's in the oven, your feet's in the refrigerator, you're comfortable. Right? See, facts can be true, but you can use them to mislead people. The important fact is not that she's his sister. The important fact is that she's his wife, and he left that out. That's the important fact. See, the fact is, no matter what he said, he intended to mislead, and motive is what counts. Doesn't matter. But see, to him, that was, she's not, I'm not really lying. It's not really a lie. She really is my, my sister. Number three, verse 13. When God calls me to wonder from my father's house. Well, if all else fails, man, God just made me this way. God, I just can't beat this thing. God just, I mean, he just made me this way. It's just who I am. It's always been this way, right? When God calls me to wonder. Listen, in other words, the situation made me do it. You know, what else could I do? Listen, let me tell you this just real quickly. There is no situation God will ever put you in that is an excuse for sin. Zero, zip, none. He will not put you into a situation where that is an excuse for sin. But, But Abraham saw it that way. Number four, verse 13. Read that whole verse. And when God calls me to wonder from my father's house, I said to her, Sarah... By the way, he's going back some probably 30, 40 years now, going way back. When he first left the city of Ur, he said to Sarah, listen, we're going to be going into these places, and whenever we come into to one of these places, I want you to say, you're my sister. So they, they developed a plan years ago. So he's been doing this over and over and over and over again. Wherever he goes, he would always say, she's my sister in order to protect himself. You see, I think when all else fails to justify the way we act sometime and the persistent sin, you know, we just say, well, that's just the way it is. We've always done it this way. You know, in other words, Abimelech, it's nothing personal against you. It's not, it's not anything against you. we just always done it this way. We decided that years ago. Okay, that was his fourth excuse. Now, by the way, his arguments, I hope they don't satisfy you. They all seem kind of pitiful, his excuses. But they seem to satisfy him. He, he's like a child that's caught dead to rights. He's sorry that he got caught, but he's not really sorry or repentant that he, that he did it. We don't see any sign of repentance in this, in this story for that persistent sin. He never says, I- I'll never do that again. He didn't say it in Egypt, and he doesn't say it here in Gerar. By the way, in both cases, he gets out of it unscathed. His, his wife, God intervenes in both cases and gives him his wife back with her purity unscathed. Not only that, in both cases, the Pharaoh and the king give him a bunch of stuff. Servants and money and, 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 and livestock. I mean, it's almost like this thing's working out great. Look at verse 14 through 16. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants, and he gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell wherever it pleases you. And to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand 
pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. So, so here we are again. We would have at least expected God to say, Abraham, come on, man. Just trust me. Quit, quit making this same dumb mistake. But we don't see that happen. In, in fact, as I said, we, we never see Abraham acknowledge the sinfulness of his, of his actions. Even now, God blesses Abraham, increases his wealth, and the son that he was promised is going to be coming right around the corner, probably within the next, uh, next year or so. But you see, what you've got to understand is all those blessings are just gifts of God's grace, had nothing to do with Abraham. It's just God blessing his... By the way, Abraham didn't earn any of that, did he? He didn't earn any of that. He wasn't a man of integrity. He wasn't doing good works. He was lying, deceiving, and God blessed him anyway. Now, at this point in the story, it's easy to think that Abraham is not going to be held to account by God, that God is not going to deal with Abraham for what he's done, but God has not forgotten what Abraham did. And in fact, he's going to deal with Abraham in a very particular and specific way. Look at verse 17 and 18. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech. And he also healed his wife and his female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So no, they could, nobody was having babies. Nobody was having any children because they closed all the wombs up. And God says, Abraham, you have to pray for Abimelech and his house that they will be healed. Listen, I said this a few months ago. I'll say it again. You never get to sin in a bubble. You never sin in a bubble. Your sin always hurts other people. The, the man that sneaks off in the middle of the night to go into his, uh, to, to go look at the computer and look at images and thinks, well, I'm not hurting anybody. No, he's hurting his marriage. And he's hurting his wife. And because he's hurting his marriage, he's hurting his children. You never sin in a bubble. You always hurt somebody else. Listen, Abraham's sin hurts Sarah. Can you imagine Sarah being used like that over and over again? Tell them you're my sister. I'm willing to... How does that make her feel? I mean, that cannot make her feel good. No, man, he'll just throw me out there to protect himself. He doesn't stand up for me or my honor. How does that make her feel? And not only does it hurt her, it hurts Abimelech. His whole household is now afflicted because of what Abraham did. But I want you to notice God would not heal Abimelech apart from Abraham's prayer. See, it isn't that Abraham is some spiritual giant that's got healing in his hands. See, what God is doing is he's dealing with Abraham by making him pray for the very people that were hurt by his sin. Think about this. Abraham now has to pray for a man that his wife will not be barren. This is the same prayer Abraham's been praying for his wife for 25 years. Are you with me? He's been praying for 25 years that Sarah would have a child. Now he has to go over and pray for another man's wife that she'll have a child, That, by the way, which was caused by him. Just a, a couple of chapters ago, uh, Abraham is praying for those in Sodom and Gomorrah, people that are hurt by his own sin. Now he has to turn around and pray for other people to be delivered, people that are actually hurt by his sin. I mean, see, that's how God deals with us. Sometimes he doesn't just come to you and say, hey man, you shouldn't have done that, blah, blah, blah. You know, sometimes he says, now go pray for those people you just hurt. 
Go, 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 go make restitution with those people that you hurt. It's, it's in dealing with the consequences of our sin that I think the reality of it hits us. Are you with me? And that's exactly what he forced Abraham to do. We can't always undo the damage of our sin, but we can always pray for those who are hurt by our sin. Ask forgiveness. Make restitution when you can. And of all means, try not to, to hurt people through sin. I mean, obviously we should try to do those things, but if all of that has failed and we've hurt other people, then we can pray for them to be healed. Real quickly, I want to do a look ahead. Next week, we're going to get to chapter 21. And, and since chapter 12, we've been building up to this chapter coming next week, chapter 21. This is the chapter where Abraham, I mean, uh, 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 Sarah gets pregnant. She has this boy as a son that God has promised to Abraham. He's going to start the lineages of this great nation. Eventually, Jesus is going to come from that lineage. It, this, is a, this is the fulfillment of the promise. And you would have expected... Isaac to be conceived at a high point in Abraham's life. That Abraham had been growing and growing and become this friend of God and now God's going to give him this son. You would have expected it to come at a high point, but it turns out not to be so. Right on the brink of Isaac's birth, Abraham almost trades it all away for his own safety. Almost messes it all up and God has to intervene. Let me tell you, what this chapter is showing us, that if this promise is going to be fulfilled, this great promise is going to be fulfilled, even at this point in Abraham's life, God has got to do it. Not Abraham. Because if it's up to Abraham, he's going to mess it all up. If it's going to be fulfilled, it's going to be fulfilled because of grace, not the works of Abraham. And by the way, that's the lesson that you and I should take away from here today. If the promises of God are going to be fulfilled in my life and your life, it's not going to be because of us. If, if it's left up to us, we will mess it up. If it's going to be fulfilled, if, if, if our inheritance in heaven, which Paul says is waiting there for us, if we're going to receive that, it's going to be for, going to, we're going to get it for one reason and one reason only, and that's the grace of God. That's it. See, I want you to see in Abraham's story. You know, for, for a couple of weeks we've been talking about how great Abraham was and how bad Lot was. Turns out Abraham wasn't quite as great as we thought he was. That he was a person just like us. He had persistent sin in his life. He made excuses for that. And he would have messed it all up if left to himself. But God's grace, God's grace is always enough. Not only in his life, but in our life as well. Next week, we'll turn to chapter 21. The title of our lesson is Final Exams. Abraham's got one more test that he needs to deal with before the birth uh, or after the birth of his son. Let's pray.